and welcome back to Happy Porch Radio Season 7. Today, Barry had the opportunity to speak with Vivian Schuff, a senior managing consultant at Oak Dean Hollands. Oak Dean Hollands work with the private and public sectors to embed sustainable practices, which improve environmental impacts, business efficiency, and profitability. I wasn't around to join you in this chat today, Barry, so I'm fascinated to hear how you got on. Yeah, how did it go? Yeah, it was all in my lonesome. But luckily, the conversation with Vivian was brilliant. So a couple of things that really stood out for me with this conversation. One is the background that Vivian has in material science and engineering is something that I really related to. And that then she wanted to take that technical skill and apply it to the work that she's doing now. And she described her personal journey and, and how that happened and so on, and which I really enjoyed. And then we talked a lot about how that background and those skills and how important and how useful it is to be able to to use that to solve these again themes in this whole season to look at these complex difficult challenging problems one of the things i enjoyed actually that she talked about was working not just with companies but with trade organizations so organizations that represent a big sector where they represent multiple companies and i thought that was an interesting different lens on this type of consulting great you know i love a personal story you know a journey to get into this stuff so that's really exciting and also this all this big picture stuff that we're talking about this season it's really as you say it is bringing out some themes and i'm excited to hear another perspective on it yeah yeah it's pretty cool let's get on and do the conversation without any further ado let's meet vivian my name is uh, Vivian Weijiaoshi. I work as a sustainability consultant at a UK-based consultancy called Okting Hollands, a small consultancy focused on the intersection of net zero and circular economy. Awesome, and welcome to Happy Porch Radio. Happy to be here. So actually, that's a bit kind of fun. You mentioned it's a UK uh, consultancy, Okting Hollands, but you're based in Canada, right? Yes, I actually have uh, jumped around a little bit. <laughs> I uh, originally moved from China to Canada back in 2010. So I kind of had my formative years in Canada, uh, Montreal to be specific. I trained as a materials engineer at McGill University in Montreal and uh, jumped over to do a master's in the UK. And that's how I sort of ended up in the UK. Awesome. So material science. So it sounds like there was a bit of an interest in this work. Have you always been interested in this work? What led to the circularity and the net zero consultancy? I actually managed to never hear about, never learn about circular economy in my four years of engineering school. I think it was also a period when sustainability was just, well, at least popping on my radar. It wasn't everywhere in the curriculum or in know the public discourse yet. I found out about the concept actually towards near finishing my degree. I started becoming interested in more of the business side of the world as well, apart from materials engineering. So I've been sort of participating in business case studies here and there. And one of the studies I joined was actually featuring a chemical recycling company for polystyrene. In their pitch, they used the word circuit economy. And that was my intro. I was like, oh, this is such an interesting engineering solution to a very obvious visible problem. I was just sort of really intrigued. It really clicked for me. Like, of course, you don't want to throw anything away. You want to conserve resources. So I sort of just went down the rabbit hole that way. And after graduating, after some soul searching, I decided I wanted to go into sustainability. So that's why, you know, the master's and uh, by chance, I also came across Oakton Hollands when I was doing my master's. So that's how the journey began. 
Tell me a little bit more about what you mean by soul searching. Do you mean in terms of choosing a career direction? What led to that? Yeah, so my very first work experience internship was at the oil and gas industry. And also as a materials engineer or engineering undergrad student, I don't know how the situation is right now, but when I was just starting out, the career options were fairly limited. So, you know, it's oil and gas or some kind of extractive industry. So mining, mineral processing, metallurgy, steel making, or engineering consultancy. That's also a very common outlook. I decided that it was not really <laughs> my interest for a variety of reasons. I'm not going <laughs> to go into here now. But yeah, eventually decided that I wanted something that is a bit more balanced in the technical side and also sort of looking at the big picture type of work. And so, yeah, Master provided me way of exploring that and kind of switching lanes a little bit. Yeah, that's really interesting. You also used as two phrases there I wanted to pick out. One, when you said it's an, the obvious solution to an engineering challenge, but then sort of stepping back and looking at big picture. So as you sort of made that transition and looking to move into sustainability and that circular economy, can you tell us a little bit more, well, first of all, what you mean by the obvious solution to the engineering challenge? So back to the original case that piqued my interest, it was about polystyrene recycling. I think before then, the training, the material engineering courses have been very focused on how do you make stuff and how do you make stuff better, stronger, more efficient, right? Like energy, energy-wise or in terms of processing materials. Of course, we talk about the environmental implications as well, but it was more around pollution control on things like that. I don't think we focus a lot on the waste aspect or turning what's used and, you know, materials transform into products and what do we do when we no longer use the products. So the other half of that life cycle was not really the focus of my curriculum. And um, when you see companies or individuals interested in that, investing time and energy in that half of the problem, you start to think, sure, like that problem applies to our daily life. Like when you look around the products that we buy, things we consume. So I think that's just sort of, it was a light bulb. Like, of course, we have to deal with it. Someone have to work on solutions to deal with it. And then you start to look around. Uh, you can see the problem of waste everywhere, I think. Yeah, I could not agree with that more. One of the themes of this season of the podcast and something that I'm always keen to call out is how sort of professional and technical skills, engineering in your case, is something that in being able to use those skills in to see that other half, as you described, to actually be part of a, this broader positive, I'm trying not to be so cheesy with my phrasing, the circularity and positive rather than just, as you said, seeing and sort of discovering there isn't just, hey, there's a magic place where things go away to. And we can continue to just, you know, feed that as if it's some sort of amazing black hole. But actually, there's an exciting opportunity. And this is what maybe my next question for you is an exciting opportunity. So when you start working in that space and you did the master's in this role, what did that part of the journey look like? Yeah, I think it was a huge learning curve for me going from engineering to the master's itself because the master's curriculum itself focused on very high level, very system thinking type of approach. You know, at first, I think my engineering core self was like, I think this is too vague. I don't know how I feel about this. I don't really like everything makes sense, but it doesn't feel very tangible. I think so that part of me was resisting a little bit. 
But eventually, you know, the curriculum was fantastic and the cohort was fantastic. And I think I learned to embrace that kind of ambiguity and complexity that is inherent in a lot of the sustainability conversations. I still try to kind of embrace my engineering self and try to be very practical and try to balance it out a little bit. But I think that is a huge skill that I think I learned from the year is, as I said, trying to find a way out in a very complex situation. And I think that's the core expectation for consultants is people come to you for advice or help them problem solving and sustainability challenges interwoven in business challenges and everything else going on in the world. It's a very complex situation. Again, it was another huge learning curve for me in, in the consulting environment because then you're expected to sort of help structure something that is inherently very, very messy. And you have to try to find a solution for different people with different interests and perspectives. So yeah, that's another interesting chapter. Yeah. That is interesting. I often think as well that as engineers or software engineering, in my case, we talk about how we enjoy complex problems. And then you put it in the context of what you're describing out. There's like that, the context, the systems part of it, where it's not just we're trying to solve this very clearly defined tiny box of a problem, but trying to fit it into this bigger picture. To me, that feels like an opportunity for the engineer, for the technical brain to go, well, here's an even more fascinating, much more difficult problem. So it's not a, I mean, it is also difficult and scary, but there's an opportunity for that skill set to really make a difference. What's the consultancy like? Tell us a little bit about the types of work that you do and the projects and the companies you work with. Yeah, so at Oakton Hollands, I sometimes like to tell people that we sort of punch above our weight. We are a quite small team. I think we're probably around mid-20s, but we do work with a huge range of clients and sectors, and we deliver different kinds of work. So, for example, I often categorize our client portfolio into, into three categories. So there's obviously the, the private sector, then the, there's the public sector, and there is the trade associations, industry associations. So a lot of our work, I think historically, and this is before my time, has been focused on the public sector. You know, a lot of kind of law reports, evidence uh, basis for policymaking. And more recently, I think we have more shifted towards to the other pillars where we do a lot of work with trade associations that is you know, supporting them to think about how the entire sector can align themselves with the sustainability agenda. I would say more specifically, associations are interested in topics like, okay, how do we get this sector to net zero? What targets or what pathways can we take? Uh, more technical issues, for example, we work a lot with the mattress sector and they want to understand, okay, what does a sustainable mattress look like a very simple, straightforward question at face value. And when you dig into it, you start to, again, go back into the complexity. Issues start unraveling and there's a lot of dimensions to that question. Uh, so we work with the members and the association sort of leadership team to try to, you know, put those different challenges into buckets and work through that collaboratively. So that's one example with a trade association. And we work a lot with the private sector, ranging from very small companies, local companies to multinationals. And, you know, the type of work can range from help us figure out what our net zero target and action plan should be. It's a very defined problem. 
to a very technical issue, for example, how do I define recyclability of my products for a multinational electronics company? So <laughs> it's really everywhere in between. One of the things I've always thought would be fun about when it sounds like from what you described is the variety of work you get to be involved in. Is that fun or is it like always oh, a bit challenging? I have to keep so many you know things in the air. Yeah, I think it's definitely both. And I think like any job, it's, I mean, to be very frank, it has good days and bad days, right? Like good days is I feel very fortunate to be a sustainability consultant because I feel like, you know, the three circles of Ikigai, like where you get out, where you get money and what's good for the world. I think I have landed on middle of that diagram. Uh, but, you know, there are challenging days where as a consultant, you're always chasing deadlines. There are things that goes out of your control. There is the pressure of juggling different projects, different priorities. So I can't say it's all sort of sunny and blue sky, but I think at the end of the day, when you sort of push through a difficult project or that feeling of satisfaction is worth it. That's pretty powerful what you're describing there. And, and actually, for anybody who's not listening, that's an interesting thing to go and check out. The Ikigai, I can't even pronounce the word properly. Ikigai, the three circles and finding the right place. Because that's a pretty strong motivator in terms of internal feeling reward for, for where you are. But also then a platform, a vehicle to push through those tough periods that you're describing. So let's explore a little bit of what you mentioned about and some of the things you touched on there, the sort of crossover between net zero and circularity. Is it a case that a lot of the motivation for the clients, the different types of clients you're working with, is coming from, you know, a kind of a pressure to be net zero and maybe a very beginnerish, if that's the right word, view of what that problem is, a very simplistic view of what that problem is? Or are you finding that the clients you work with are actually further down the road you know, there's less education you need to do and you're actually digging into the next stage of the, solving the problems. Yeah, well, I actually want to take a step back because I think our company, what we do actually started from recycling, I think was the genesis of the company. So it was when recycling was a, a new concept. And I remember the veterans in the company telling me about they having to convince people that recycling is beneficial and can make them money, can support, it can save them money. So I would say probably for a very long time, companies look at recycling or over time sort of economy as a way to save money or as a way to look for new opportunities to innovate and maybe develop different products and services and expand their company. So I would say it is actually a very commercial angle that they have been taking. There is such a natural overlap between circular economy and the whole climate action landscape. And I think for the longest time, that was the missing link is, okay, we intuitively understand the benefits of conserving materials and eliminating waste, but how does that translate into carbon and sort of this global agenda? And I think that the connection was made in the past probably five, six years. We started to pick that up and more translating between materials and carbon and that kind of converged into into one so back to the clients you know sometimes they can be 
very knowledgeable or already doing a lot of the circular economy stuff, but they have issues or trouble translating that into carbon figure or translating to fitting that into a net zero strategy because you know, net zero often will look at 2040, 2050 timeline and some businesses find it very difficult to kind of plan for that. And so you have to work with them to set more near-term targets and look at the current state, how to fit, how to use circular economy as one of the ways to kind of start getting that momentum going. So I think it is definitely a range of maturity that, that we're working with. That's interesting too. A couple of things to pick out and I think to explore in a little bit more detail, if you don't mind, what you just said. So just quickly, if you wouldn't mind, just talking a little bit more about what you mean by the relationship or the impact that circularity can have on carbon and and what the kind of connections are there to sort of flesh that out a bit. Originally, when we worked on circular economy, we focused more on the aspect of, again, conserving materials, eliminating waste, like very physical terms. And I believe a couple of years back, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, um, in collaboration with Material Economics, a, I think they're Sweden-based consultancy, they decided to quantify the carbon-saving opportunity of circular economy. And I think their conclusion was that around 45% of the global emissions could be reduced in association with products and materials. So things like carbon intensive materials like cement, steel, plastics, aluminium. So, you know, that those are the primary materials that make up the fabrics of our life. So they quantified the size of opportunity if we were to you know, treat these materials smarter. We are saving carbon probably a lot of companies would be saving money as well. So kind of again strengthening the case for circular economy. And More recently, I think with um, the topic of biodiversity and more broadly, the planetary boundaries being highlighted more and more, again, circular economy touches on so many dimensions because the very act of extracting and transforming materials, it has a multifaceted impact on our ecosystem, right? So naturally, when we dig into how we could intervene, you start to look at multiple benefits and not just carbon, although carbon is usually the one that grabs the, I guess the headlines. Yeah. <laughs> and something else you mentioned that always is an important part of the conversation is the commercial case, because I think so many people make the mistake of solely relying on the importance of the environmental case but it's the commercial case that is the driver for that, right, within a business and the day-to-day practical things. And if that's where the circular economy, whether that's saving or opening up new opportunities, that's for me, the, it feels like those things can be aligned and there's some excitement there. And then, as you said, if you align that with the carbon impacts and then look at the potential biodiversity improvements from supply, suddenly there's all these positive things that feel like it's, a, as you said at the start, the obvious solution. So... If you can, it would be interesting to sort of make that a little bit more concrete when we talk about the carbon impact. When you're working with a client and looking at their materials they're using, can you give us some examples of practical, like how do you go from here's this materials to let's do some sort of carbon reporting and feed that back into how we change the, whether that's supply chain or amount of materials or design of the product or whatever. Is there some sort of concrete examples you can share? 
Sure. I mean, we can go back to the mattress example. I think everyone can relate to. So there are different types of mattresses. Yes, and、uh, mattresses. If you ever cut it open, it can actually be quite complex in terms of the types of materials in there and how they're combined together. So we have been working with a lot of mattress manufacturers as well as suppliers. To first of all look at what is the current state of mattress design, you know what typically goes in there, how the materials drawn together, you know staples or glued or different types of attachments. I think we also invited recyclers to show mattress recyclers to show us when these mattresses do end up on their sites, how are they taken apart, and what materials are taken out and has potential value and. Essentially, how do they disassemble a mattress and make something out of what we see as junk? So it is different. The recyclers have different processes, but you know, you quickly realize how difficult it is to take it apart because it's not meant to be taken apart. It's not designed to be. And、um, so that gives us an idea of okay, we now know what materials are in there, so we can now go back to the supply chain to understand. Okay, let's say a polyurethane foam pad. How is it made? What are all the ingredients that go in there? Where do those ingredients come from? And you start to build up a carbon profile of the raw ingredients, and then you have to process energy and additives, and eventually it bakes into a foam block, and then you have to transport energy. So it's kind of tracing back the steps and adding up the carbon at each stage. Same thing for other materials like steel springs or the fabric covers. So each of that component has its own profile and its own carbon story accumulated over the different steps when we look back. So now, once you have that baseline picture, we can go back to the our clients to say, okay, we have looked at your supply chain, we have looked at your materials profile and other sources of emissions, and to to essentially make and deliver a product. You pick out what's critical. So usually it's the materials that you use the most. Now here comes the challenges because sometimes manufacturers and suppliers can be protective of their design and sort of recipe in making a product, and also there can be very limited alternatives that can demonstrate better environmental portfolio. Let's say. So sometimes it can be a trade-off, right? If you went for, let's say, natural materials, you might intuitively think, okay, it's all natural. Maybe the carbon footprint will be lower. It's not always that clear cut, depending on how the material is sourced or where it's coming from. So it's very difficult to make decisions without the hard data. And then even if you had hard data, I think it's good practice to challenge that data because you know you don't know what assumptions were built into that number. So it becomes a very lengthy process to something that looks like a simple decision of should I use this material or that material, and that's just on the carbon front, right? It's not even folding into you know the, the feel of the fabric and the, the feel of the spring and how the customer is gonna like it. So it quite quickly explodes into a very complicated decision. But I think that's where. You know the expertise of the manufacturers factor in, right? They have to do that trade-off, and the consultant's role is to say, you know, from these criteria in terms of you know, carbon and other environmental factors, here are your options. 
And, you know, if you do that and look at material as well as product levels, right? All right. So you choose the right material. The next step is how you put the product together. And that in there, there's a lot of opportunity as well. So I think it is kind of a bit like reverse engineering. You kind of try to walk through each decision and help the manufacturers or help the suppliers as well think about their process or think about their products in a different way. That's brilliant. Thank you for that. And that gives a little tiny insight into what you were talking before about the complexity of it, not just the complexity as in the amount of different data and sort of trying to trace and work all that out, but also the difficulty of getting that information. As you said, reverse engineering, when some people in the supply chain may either not have the data or be very happy to share it is a proper challenge. Yeah, I would say that is the word probably that is uttered the most is data. I don't know if by consultants or if that's shared by other as a sustainability profession uh, professions as well. Is it is so crucial to baselining and so crucial to understanding what you need to focus your energy on, and of course for measuring your progress. So yes, data is a constant challenge, but I think. There are a lot of coalitions and industry initiatives that is trying to tackle that challenge by having a kind of more comprehensive approach instead of individual companies firing questions to suppliers and make a big mess out of it. One of the things that I'm interested in in that work is the tooling and the software, I mean, and the way that you do that work and looking at the data. Are there, like the existing information systems that are used, are they able to answer? Are they kind of in the way sometimes for understanding? Because they'll be all optimized for this information flow the other way, like some linear stuff where you need to get as many of this product from here as fast as possible. So do you find that you can use existing systems or do you have to you know is there existing tools you can use or is it a much more manual process in some cases yeah i think a lot of times the data comes across need cleaning and a lot of manual process and sometimes as you said the original system is not set up to help with carbon accounting the most typical issue we run into is that things are recorded in currencies or recorded in units of purchase, but not in, let's say, weight or volume, so the physical measures. And so typically that requires a lot of assumptions to translate, say, units purchased into kilograms of steel, kilograms of aluminium, things like that, so that we can eventually culminate all of that into a carbon number. Right, if you think about a laptop, you buy one laptop, but, but if you need to break it down into materials and weights, it's a nightmare. Thank you. That can totally imagine that. That's exactly what I see as well. And one of the things that I think, as I mentioned before, one of the themes in this season of the podcast and Happy Portrait generally is kind of shining a light on the opportunities for those of us in professionals with professional skill sets and or with business owners or whatever who aren't who feel like it's not directly working on circularity or working on sustainability or something. But in that example you just mentioned, if some of that tracking software did something as simple as provide some more data that would require somebody in that process to understand, well, this data is useful because it's going to be useful for carbon counting or it's going to be useful for the waste of the recyclers or the repurposers at the end. Just a little bit of knowledge there and a little bit of planning and some of the tooling can significantly change the whole flow process. And I think there's something there that, in my opinion, is a really important message for us to try and get everybody excited about. 
Yeah, I think it is uh, continue the terminology of carbon accounting. As that proliferates, I think companies will get into the under the hood of the tools that they currently use and start to realize that they need a different set of units for a different set of accounting. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So just as we're starting to head towards the end of our time, unfortunately, looking forward for you in terms of not just for the work that you're doing and the business, the consultancy, what's next and where would you like to go over the next year or two? Yeah, that's a huge question. And I asked that myself as well. I think what's important for me is that I continue to explore opportunities in that middle of the Venn diagram of Ikigai, right? So I do love sustainability consulting for the variety and for the constant challenge as well. I think what I'm interested in is really going even a level higher in terms of being able to truly look at systems, the sustainability system. So back to what I learned in my master's, and I think a lot of the sustainability consulting, when you're focusing on individual clients and businesses, it can be very hard to bring that system picture into it because, you know, businesses, they are, they tend to focus more on their own value chains, you know, I, and I completely understand why they be thinking in that way. And, you know, but there is, I think opportunity in connecting value chains and also bringing in non-commercial entities. So for example, the role of academics, the role of NGOs and of policymakers all working together and across industries, there can be a lot of mutual benefits in exploring some of the opportunities. So that's what I'm really interested in as the next step is kind of, we've already let's say, join the dots, but how can we now join the lines into the next dimension? So yeah, I think that would be very exciting as an individual, but also as a sustainability consultant. Yeah, awesome. I totally hear what you're saying. That's pretty exciting. And I hope that you do more, keep up the good work and do more of that in the future. That would be awesome. And just finally, before we finish up, for those who've been listening in who want to find out more about yourself or Oakdean Hollands, where should they go? Well, so you can go to our website, just Google Oakdale Hollands, and uh, you can also, I think, search value retention. That is one of the things that our company has been advertising a lot for our clients. We also focus on remanufacturing. If you ever want to read about remanufacturing, you'll probably come across a lot of our work as well. You can see what kind of work we do. Thanks so much. And just for the listeners, that's Oakdean, O-A-K-D-E-N-E-H-O-L-L-I-N-S.com, Oakdean Holland. As usual, we'll put all the links in the show notes on happyporchradio.com. Vivian, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. It's such a great chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of Happy Porch Radio. You can find past episodes, transcripts, and show notes at happyporchradio.com. You can also get in touch with us there and let us know what you think or if you have any ideas or comments. Please rate the podcast, share and subscribe so that more people can find the show. Thanks for listening. My name's Barry O'Kane. I founded Happy Porch, who fund and support this podcast. At Happy Porch, we do technology and software development for purpose-led businesses, and we're particularly excited about the role of digital as an enabler for the circular economy. If you're working on solutions to the big problems we face today, problems like climate change, biodiversity loss, and global inequality, then let's connect. Visit happyporch.com and get in touch. And I'm Emily Swaddle, podcaster, coach, facilitator, and storyteller. You can find me on my other podcast, The Carbon Removal Show, And you can find out more about that project and everything else I do at emilyswaddle.com, where you can also subscribe to my newsletter all about rest. If you're interested in anything I do, feel free to connect. You can email me on 
hello at emilyswaddle.com. Thank you.